But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. So this is Politics in Space. I am one of your co-hosts, Joel, and I'm joined by... Antoine. And today we are going to be talking about RoboCop. Mm-hmm. Just the first one, none of the spin-offs. Why did you not look at the other ones, Joel? So the other ones do not fit into the same mold as the original. The sequel is basically just a cash grab trying to make an action movie that plays upon the popularity of the first one. The third one is very toned down and essentially a, a child's movie. The remake is, again, they're trying to reboot it as an action movie, and they've been doing this with a lot of 80s movies, a lot of 80s sci-fis. I think the one that most comes to mind at the moment is the Predator reboot. Oh, yeah. That one started out as really a quintessential... 1980s American, you know, sort of uh, criticism of their involvement in Central America, sort of a ridiculous commando-like infiltration into Central America that goes terribly wrong, Mm -hmm. and they rebooted it as more of a, you know, lighthearted action comedy, really stripping away a lot of the value of the Predator, and they did the same thing with the RoboCop. (laughs) <laughs> when you Revisit. say the values of the predator, <laughs> or do you mean the being the predator? Uh, both. Okay, yeah. 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 I'm not sure what the values of the predator are, other than, I guess, uh, hunt for honor. Is, is, is it a value? Yeah, they are very rule-based. Mm-hmm. They are very, in, in the sequel, Yeah. to the point where when the predator is defeated, he offers up a trophy to the human. To in recognition of their 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 equality at that point, and so to right. turn a pr- the predator from that sort of a thoughtful alien into just fodder for chaos mm-hmm. and action is really disappointing. Didn't in the original Predator movie doesn't the Predator uh, self detonate a nuclear explosion when he loses? That doesn't that, maybe there was some retcon after the first <laughs> to give him more nobility because that doesn't seem very noble. It's like well, I guess you guys win, so everyone dies. Well, even with that though, he gives Arnold Schwarzenegger a timer, mm-hmm. an obvious timer. He could have just blown himself up, in theory. Mm-hmm, Instead, mm-hmm. he gives him the opportunity to escape. So I still or, think it's noble. Fair enough, yeah. Or he gives him a convenient plot device. Or that. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you? Oh, 
So we're not talking about Predator today, though. No, we're not. We were talking about the original RoboCop, the best one, the one that is the child of Verhoeven. And I should say as well that this is going to be the first part of a two-part series. Oh, yeah. And the general theme of this two-part series is uh, Paul Verhoeven's sci-fi fascism pictures. Uh That's basically how I would describe it. It's kind of crude, I think, to divide the movies in this way. Yeah. But I want to argue that RoboCop is a predictive dystopian view of American fascism, while Mm -hmm. Starship Troopers is more of a utopian satire of fascism. Do you think they're in the same universe? Uh, (laughs) That's an interesting theory. So they easily could be in the same universe. There's nothing... That would that would speak to it being parallel universes because they're separated by such a distance of time, mm-hmm. and it's pretty clear that the events of RoboCop could lead to Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers, <laughs> that world is created because there is a World War Three that essentially destroys all of the neoliberal democratic order and it's uh, up to the military leaders to take over and forge a fascist society out of the ashes and in robocop there are a lot of signs that the world in general is slipping towards fascism and potentially catastrophic nuclear war there's even a uh, uh one of the news advertisements within the the movie talks about how south africa Uh is has built an atomic bomb as a means of maintaining apartheid you give us three minutes and we'll give you the world good morning i'm casey wong with jess perkins top story pretoria The threat of nuclear confrontation in South Africa escalated today when the ruling white military government of that besieged city-state unveiled a French-made neutron bomb and affirmed its willingness to use the three-megaton device as the city's last line of defense. (laughs) So if they're willing to... If if the, the states in this universe of Robocop are willing to go to nuclear war to maintain their power structures, Mm -hmm. it can certainly be the catalyst that creates Starship Troopers. Mm-hmm. That, that already opens up so many questions, but I think I'll keep them for, for like when we you know get into the nitty-gritty of, uh, uh, of Robocop. But yeah, this rise of fascism is interesting, and it seems like it's also the rise of corporate fascism. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's hard to separate 
fascism from the corporate element. That's something we can definitely discuss. Uh, before we go into the, this theme of fascism, though, I, I'd like to give the plot of RoboCop really quick to people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So we start off in a post-industrial Detroit. So it's very similar to our own timeline. Yeah. The... <laughs> <laughs> what, what, do, you know, do we know what year RoboCop is set in? Uh, I think it is supposed to be contemporary to the 80s. I think it's supposed to be uh, just a like like a like like a slightly like slightly forward so 90s i think i think it's supposed yeah, to be the 1990s I like in the 80s movies when the future was like 2003 yeah <laughs> <laughs> and people are flying cars and like there's this gigantic robot okay yeah. well, hang on. before i let you go on so does that mean is robocop supposed to be in the future because the movie came out in what 87 Yes. So was it supposed to be the future of 87 or an alternate universe of the Detroit of 80, 1987? Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it, I think it's like, supposed to take place a few years into the future. I don't think it's sure. that things okay. develop differently. I think, yeah, it was... Pre- I, I'm pretty sure that it's predictive for the 90s. Wow, okay. Yeah, like the, like the immediate 90s. future of a 1980s Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, the technologic future of the late 90s. Okay, yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, and so when we're in this post-industrial Detroit, we see that the economy has just completely collapsed. Criminal elements rule the streets. The municipal government of Detroit is bankrupt, just like in our own timeline. They don't have the revenue base to be able to support anything, policing services, social services. And so the mayor of Detroit, what he does is he decides to make a deal with a large corporation called Omni Consumer Products, and it's otherwise known throughout the movie as OCP for short. Uh-huh. And in exchange... That's a good name, eh? For it is. <laughs> yeah. What do they do? Everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. It's this idea, and this is this is apparent in a lot of different anti-corporate media, is that it tends towards monopoly and that there will be just this one big umbrella. I mean, there you go, like an umbrella corporation, like in resident evil, like yeah. one big corporation that will run all the different industries. Same thing with, um, the recently released Joker movie. You have Wayne industries. Like, what does that mean? And, and whenever Wayne industries is shown in the Batman universe, it's always building, you know, it's always building some kind of random thing. It's like they have their fingers in all the pies. No, we are showing very healthy growth in these sectors. I don't think that Thomas Wayne would have viewed heavy arms manufacture as a suitable cornerstone for our business. That's 20 years ago. Fred Davis. I think after 20 years we can allow ourselves to stop thinking about what Thomas Wayne would have done. Yeah. Yeah, well, interesting <clears throat> enough, in, in Resident Evil, the Umbrella Corporation is not an Umbrella Corporation. It's just its name. Like, it very specializes in biotech, but... Oh, really? Imagine a world where you can reverse the effects of age, stress, and sun. From the leading name in biotechnology comes Regenerate. Another breakthrough from the Umbrella Corporation. Regenerate's revolutionary T-cell formula actually brings dead cells back to life. Now, your youthful beauty can last 
forever. Always consult your doctor before starting treatment. Some side effects may occur. Regenerate is a registered trademark of the Umbrella Corporation. Our business is life itself. Yeah, yeah, it's so it's called Umbrella, but it is not an Umbrella organization. Anyway, that's for a whole other day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't wait the to crack that note. Resident, <laughs> Resident Evil, they end up nuking Raccoon City because it's <laughs> then. Like, <laughs> so, so you know, it's different, uh, different world. Yeah, and you know, you know, a corporate entity would do that if they needed to minimize catastrophic corporate losses. They would it's, totally yeah, nuke the city. Yeah, it's the government that does it in Resident Evil. It's the government that does it after uh, a operation fails to contain the zombie threat. Oh yeah. And so they nuke the place down. But it's like since Resident Evil, suppose like I think the game is set in '98 or something yeah. like this. So. As the games came out, like like the next game was like in 2003, so the year in Resident Evil was 2003. So they had to gain a, it, like they had to establish it's not the future, it's just alternate universe. Okay. Where, you know, so it's same timeline, same as today, except we're weird tech because it's a video game. Um, but yeah, okay, that's we're not talking and, about Resident Evil. No, either. but that's interesting. Are they so? Does the Umbrella Corporation in the video game are do they work in conjunction with the government, or the government gets wise to what's going on and then of their own volition they decide to nuke the city? Yeah, the government wisens up to what the what the Umbrella Corporation is doing. Like I think the Umbrella Corporation uses corruption to get like. Uh, stay off the radar, but yeah. they're like what they're they, like under Raccoon City. They build this entire gigantic laboratory underground so that nobody knows it's there, and they, they create there like the hardest, the, the the harshest viruses that they can find. Trying to basically what they're trying to do is uh, sell a virus to uh, world power so they can use it in warfare. That, that's really interesting because yeah. if you look at the the parallel in RoboCop. It's the same sort of thing, like the government is relatively benign and just has to has to deal with the corporation because it's just yeah. a fact of American life that it's this ultra important institution within the within American society. Can I tell you that was a fantastic segue, by the way? <laughs> right on. That was good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, carrying on then. In exchange for financing the police department, the municipal government of Detroit will hand over part of the city to be redeveloped into a model private community that they're going to that OCP is going to call Delta City. Uh, but there's a catch to this agreement, and it's that the corporation isn't only financing the police; they're also going to get involved in policing using their advanced prototype technologies. There is a senior vice president of OCP whose name is Dick Jones, and he has his personal project, the Ed 209, which is it's kind of sort of like the um, one of those. I know you're a Star Wars fan. It looks kind of like an ATST, right? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. I know the. I've seen the movie. I know. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically like a like a Spoilers. bipedal turret type type of yeah. device. 
And so they have a board meeting to introduce the Ed 209, but it malfunctions and it kills a board member in a, yeah. in a very hilarious way. That's, that's an unfortunate mistake at work. Like, <laughs> it's very embarrassing. one to recover from. Yeah. Like, why were you fired from your last job? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because this is corporate America, Dick Jones doesn't get fired because, you know, there's never any consequences to the executive board. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, I guess there's no real, yeah, he keeps his job, right? Keeps his, his job. job. Yeah, it's, it's fun. He keeps his job, but there is one consequence for Dick Jones. It's that there's another executive at the table. His name's Bob Morton, and he promotes his own pet, uh, pet project, and that's called the RoboCop. Yeah. So the OCP chairman, he's at this board meeting when the Ed 209 goes crazy and kills a guy. And so he sees this, what, what has happened, and he agrees instead to pursue the RoboCop cyborg over the Ed 209 robot. And this Which obviously... he killed the board member. Yeah, in front of everybody. And so yeah. this really this really pisses off Dick Jones, but what's he going to do, right? Like, his, his pet project fucked up. Yeah. So, um, it, <clears throat> in order for OCP to build a cyborg cop, they first need an officer to die in the line of duty. So, to get a corpse, they start sending out beat cops to patrol the bad parts of town. I'm very curious about the uh, development process of that technology. Like, at what point do you, like, you probably delay the need for the dead cop to, like, until you get to a critical point in your project development? Yeah. So, like, I wonder, like, did they have, like, did they try on other, like, living beings before they needed a person? And or did they try with like other people before they needed a specific cop? Because like it seems like when you when you're at a point where you say I need a dead cop, yeah. your project's got to be solid for sure, right? Like it's not just uh, <laughs> you're not getting the cop in your basement and then maybe try things. Yeah, my guess is probably on the homeless of Detroit. If I had to create a backstory, that's probably how they test out the technology initially. It so wouldn't the biggest be enough to RoboCop called Robo Hobo. Yeah, he might have a like either an enemy or a partner in crime who could, uh, <laughs> could team up with RoboCop. <laughs> he could create all this a bunch of deputies. RoboCop and his yeah. <laughs> 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 all right, go on. Sorry, I, I, I'm liking the Robo Hobo. <laughs> so uh, one of these officers that they said, and he's a newly transferred. Uh, his name's Officer Murphy, and he pairs up with a female cop named Officer Lewis. And together they track down the uh, notorious Boddicker gang to an industrial zone where the, the two become separated. Mm -hmm. uh, Murphy is then ambushed and he's tortured to death by the gang. OCP later collects his corpse and reanimates him as the Robocop cyborg without anyone knowing that, that this has happened, including his partner, Officer Lewis. Mm -hmm. And when he's reanimated, he's like any good robot he has to be given directives, right? So he's given four prime directives. Number one is to serve the public trust. Number two is to protect the innocent. Number three is to uphold the law. And then there's a secret hidden directive as number four. Mm -hmm. Come in later. Um, Robocop, he goes right to work. He's, he just mercilessly crushes violent criminals in Detroit. Yeah, um, yeah. But since OCP has no real plan to target the root of crime in Detroit, the city just continues to spiral downwards. And the police, with their bad working conditions, they threaten to go on strike. Mm -hmm. now, meanwhile, Officer Lewis, she has suspicions that RoboCop is actually her former partner, Murphy. Mm -hmm. And What gives her suspicions that it is the case? 
Uh, just like, I don't know, intuition. Just a sort of yeah. a sense that, yeah, that this guy... I mean, half, it, his, his, half his face is there, yes. His, 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 I mean, yeah, I guess if she st- stared at his chin a lot <laughs> in that first day that they worked together, and maybe they could, they, she could judge that it's Murphy. Uh, he yeah. has a hell of a chin. He's perfect for the yeah. role. He's got a specific chin, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, wonder anyway, they, yeah. I wonder if they select, when they were going through the photos of trying to pick what <laughs> cop they were going to kill to make RoboCop, if that was one of the parameters. Because, yeah, you yeah. know, if he takes a if he takes a punch from by a criminal, he's not going down. He's got a, he's got a solid chin there. And that's his one <laughs> weak spot, apparently. Which, incidentally, yeah. it's weird that no one ever tries to shoot him in through the chin. It seems like the obvious weak point, but anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Robo... Sorry? <laughs> it's I think it's called plot armor. That's when, it's called uh, that's plot when armor. <laughs> plot armor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, Robocop initially is he's just kind of confused. He's obviously gone through a horrific physical trauma, but even him himself, he be- he begins to regain parts of his memory, and he discovers that uh, his wife and child they've left D- Detroit after they assume he's dead from being murdered. <laughs> As you do. Yeah, it's a. Uh... Uh, being dead is a likely outcome of being, of being murdered. murdered. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Usually, that's it's a fair assumption that, that they make. <laughs> uh, so while all this is going on, the the VP uh, Dick Jones, he's just absolutely furious that Morton is being promoted due to the success of the RoboCop program, and he conspires with the Boddicker gang to have Morton murdered so that they can shut down the RoboCop program. Mm-hmm. Now, after some police work, RoboCop manages to track down Boddicker and he gets him to admit on recorded video that he was hired by Jones to murder Morton. Uh-huh. RoboCop, yeah, strong evidence. Yeah, he has strong, strong evidence right there. RoboCop then goes to arrest Jones, but mm-hmm. the secret fourth directive, which is now revealed, is activated, and it prevents RoboCop from arresting any executive of OCP. That is a quite a surprise. <laughs> yeah, right, that they would, in their creature, they would give themselves total immunity. So What's, what's amazing about this is that clearly, like, the, the executives are not the one to program whatever, like, software. So they managed to convince a computer engineer to actually put this code down, yeah. and, the, and the guy did it. Like at no point, because <laughs> that's an easy thing to say. Oh yeah, it's, oh yeah, I totally did that. I, yeah. How are you gonna test it? <laughs> <laughs> I think if you rise in the ranks of OCP, you're probably a morally compromised individual. They probably do a good job of filtering out anyone with a conscience. Yeah. So like basically, the real code is that Steve from IT cannot be killed by Robocop. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would There's be so pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay yeah <laughs> so jones then he he still has his ed 209 and he sicks him on robocop and and robocop is badly damaged in the, in the ensuing fight between the two of them robocop narrowly escapes his total destruction with the help of officer lewis and well this is right yeah now she, she's she's aware now yeah and um jones he uses the chaos of the, the police strike that's going on to free Boddicker. And he, he tells him to finish the job. You know, go with your gang and go finish off RoboCop. Let's get this done. 
And in the ensuing fight, Officer Lewis, she's wounded, and Robocop kills Boddicker. Um, Robocop then, he, he has to get the main bad guy, right? He, so he heads back to OCP headquarters. He confronts Jones once again, uh, this time in front of the chairman of OCP. Jones feels safe that Robocop can't do anything to hurt him, but the chairman fires Jones right there on the spot. That's, and that's it's brilliant, great. right? <laughs> so now he's no longer an executive, and therefore he's no longer protected by the immunity of the fourth directive. So I Robo wonder what the, like, I wonder what their governance structure or rules are that the president of the board, I guess, can just fire a board member without due process. Because like really, that robot should have been like looking at the minutes and making sure the 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 bylaws of the organization have been followed. <laughs> yeah, to make sure it's a valid decision. Like it feels like a bit expeditive, but it's. Uh... <laughs> well, I, I guess if the chairman owns fifty one percent of the stock, he would have a total. Uh, ability to make any decision for the board instantly. Well, you still have to gather like the shareholders or something like this before you can have the vote, right? <laughs> Unless you're the majority, <laughs> if you're the majority voting shareholder, then you, you could do it yourself. Uh, theoretically. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know. We don't know the we don't know the board structure of OCP, so we it could yeah, be a major plot hole. Yeah. Uh, So so Dick Jones is fired. Yeah, and then Robocop, he takes this opportunity, opens fire, and he blows Jones out the boardroom window to his death. And so the chairman's super thankful. He thanks Robocop for his service, and he asks for his name. And Robocop replies with his famous final line, Murphy. So Mm -hmm. there you go. He's Mm -hmm. regained his humanity. Because whatever happens... This corporation will live up to the guiding principles of its founder. Courage, strength, conviction. We will meet each new challenge with the same aggressive attitude. How can we help you, officer? Dick Jones is wanted for murder. This is absurd. That thing is a violent mechanical psychopath. My program will not allow me to act against an officer of this company. These are serious charges. What is your evidence? I had to kill Bob Morton because he made a mistake. Now it's time to erase that mistake. I had to kill Bob Morton because he made a mistake. Now it's time to erase that mistake. I want a chopper, now! We will walk to the roof very calmly. I will board the chopper with my hostage. Anybody tries to stop me? The old geezer gets it. Dick? You're fired! Thank you. Nice 
Nice shooting, son. What's your name? Murphy. And see. Uh, and yeah, there you go. And so this this all kind of seems like a very simple, straightforward sci-fi, you know, robot thriller type movie. Yeah. But as we've already kind of hinted at, there are a lot of layers to this movie. Uh, I think a lot of those layers we can trace back to the director, Paul Verhoeven's, his background and mm-hmm. how he, he describes his filmmaking process. Um, I would argue that for, for Verhoeven himself, that it, Robocop draws primarily from two personal impulses. The first one I would say is his childhood growing up in Nazi occupied Holland. Mm-hmm. Verhoeven really has an intimate sense of fascism and the accompanying violence that comes with it. So that's an interesting point. I didn't know. I did not know this about him. Yeah, it's it really marked him uh, as a person. And so, in the world of RoboCop, it's not only more gory than your typical action sci-fi of the time, or really of any time. But mm-hmm. the violence is overtly sadistic. So when the criminal gang, they're mutilating Murphy. Yeah. They're taking active glee in doing so. They're not just doing it because it's a mission. They're doing right. it because yeah, it's right. fun for them. Or there's an appreciation of being able to do it. Or Yeah, exactly. Well, you got to be some kind of great cop. Come in here all by yourself. Where's your partner? Where's your partner? Well, guys, the other one was upstairs. She was sweet. Mm, mm, mm. I took her out. (laughs) I bet that really pisses you off. (laughs) You probably don't think I'm a very nice guy. Do you? Buddy, I think you're slime. (laughs) See, I got this problem. Cops don't like me, so I don't like cops.
<laughs> okay. Bonzo. <laughs> okay, let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I... Even just kind of like the idea of it is upsetting, like the very idea of mutilating a man to the point of destroying most of his brain even is kind of, it really haunted me, especially when I watched this as a child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it shaped, shaped the man you are yeah. today. Despite the fact that I was watching this on like the heavily censored version on CBC, it was still quite upsetting was, what they did to him. Was it even more censored? Because I guess it must have been like a, like a, what, 16 plus or R rated in the, in the 80s? I used to always watch it when it was on at like three or four in the afternoon, so I'm pretty. I, I remember it as being relative. I think if I had seen the original cut, I that would have marked myself even more. But I just remember it being a, a, a messed up idea of a guy <laughs> being so destroyed that he has to be entirely replaced by mm-hmm. robotic parts is a really upsetting idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the fascism, the fascistic elements of just hyper-violence are there throughout the film. And there's even kind of subtle odes to fascism, like like if you, you remember Boddicker's eyeglasses? They're very much in the style of Heinrich Himmler's glasses. Oh, those, I don't, I didn't know about those movie details. That's what, I always think that's very clever to do. Yeah, just dropping little, little hints in there that the, the bad guys, yeah, okay, they're Nazis, yeah. right? They're not, they're in all but name. They're Nazis. Yeah, I mean, Dick Jones' like little center mustache was a bit much. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> all those leather outfits. Yeah. Well, we'll... <laughs> I mean, we will see that. We will see those little not so subtle hints dropped in my next episode on Starship Troopers because, yeah. boy, yeah. howdy, does he lay it on thick in that, and he lays it in progressively <laughs> so that it just gets more and more. It's sort of like the message is, okay, so this is fascism. Oh, you didn't think it was about fascism? Well, how about this? Oh, you still don't think it's about fascism? <laughs> well, he, you know, here's a guy in a completely leather trench coat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you get it now? Um, do you get it now? <laughs> and so the, <laughs> yeah, so the second impulse, other than growing up in Nazi-occupied Holland, I think the second impulse that really makes this movie special is that Paul Verhoeven, obviously, he's European, so he's an outsider looking into America. He yeah. has this distance from American society that allows him to better predict where the U.S. was headed than maybe an American director who might believe in the Francis Fukuyama idea that there is this end of history based around American exceptionalism and triumphalism and you know from an inevitable victory in the Cold War. Yeah. You know, Fukuyama, he basically argued that with the end of the Soviet Union and communism as competing ideologies to, uh, to capitalism, everyone would have to follow the American model towards a perfect neoliberal society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Fukuyama, he's, he's spoken recently about how he's kind of abandoned the idea in the wake of world, you know, there's a worldwide rise of authoritarianism going on and yeah, showing like, that, that's what I was about to say. Like his, uh, like it, I, from the point of view, like hindsight is twenty twenty. But I definitely think that in our lifetime, we're already starting to see the cracks of the capitalist system, mm-hmm. and then and then and then foresee what the next step, I guess, is or what's the the next phase of history it is. 
Yeah, so China showed that you can be authoritarian and also have a uh, a raging economy. You can have correct nine percent economic growth, and you can have capitalism without democracy. And then a correct. bunch of little authoritarian states decided they would rather model themselves after China as opposed to America. So you look at Turkey as a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of they went from a democracy, a sort of a democracy that was managed by the military to a populist authoritarianism and hell even america now is going down that yes. path so yeah for sure <laughs> yeah but this idea yeah, of the yeah, yeah. this idea of the <laughs> end of history it was quite popular at this time in the late 80s that the soviet union looks chlorotic and america looked dynamic and so verhoven verhoven seems to have a much better idea because of his europeanness of where America would actually go, that it would descend more towards fascism than towards some sort of perfect neoliberal society. And um, so I think this outsider impulse, it also leads to two main predictions. One is predicting how technology would change policing. So we see a lot of killer robots in fiction, but they're, they're usually either malfunctioning, like HAL in 2001, A Space Odyssey, or there's some kind of alien race of malignant killers, like the Borg in Star Trek, or... Yeah, well, uh, the, the AI gone rogue is like a classic trope <laughs> in sci-fi. It happens in ev- everything as AI gone rogue. Yeah, so we either have like a rogue or we have an evil, evil killer robots, like the Daleks of Doctor Who or whatever... And but yeah. then on the other side we often have helper robots who are selfless they selflessly serve the protagonist and they're generally mm-hmm. peaceful like C three PO and R two D two in Star Wars. Or you have yeah. the improved version of Bishop in Aliens. Yeah. They're just completely selfless. But you don't typically see what you don't typically see are uh, autonomous and violent do gooder robots that are a mix of the two. Ones that use their own judgment to dispense violence in the service of some sort of human ideal. I guess the closest I can think of would be uh, like uh, the new Star Wars movies, like in Rogue One, where they have a droid that's like helping a bigger cause without having a moral code. You know, the the Imperial droid in Rogue One? Yeah, yeah. So he's got a gun and shit, so... Right, and he wants to yeah. shoot things, and he wants to like cause mayhem in yeah. the name of something big. But I think you're right. This is a very rare, like, um, it's a very rare uh, robot to see in, in fiction. Yeah, you think about how long it took to be able to get a character like that. Yeah, it, it is quite yeah. rare, and mm. it's also it's also contemporary to modern warfare in the age of the war on terror i think because if you consider what the main tool of this of this ongoing forever war is it's aerial predator drones primarily and really what they're doing is less war and more policing duties you could say and so that's it's sort of it's sort of a robocop for our own time is this this killer robot that's <laughs> autonomous and yeah, that, that is, is trying to achieve some sort of ideal goal through hyper violence <laughs> <laughs> so you know you know that could be a bit of too much of an abstract leap to consider the predator 
drone as a Robocop, but uh, I think if we look closer to an American domestic context, remember a few years ago when there was that Dallas cop killer and he, he ended up holding himself into a, in a building and yeah. they, they killed him by sending in a terrestrial drone and just blew him up. You know? and Is that how they ended it? They, yeah, that's how they ended it. They killed him with a drone. Uh, and this drone, it looked kind of more like a little tank with treads than, it, yeah. than anything that's bipedal. But if we look at the kinds of prototypes that are being developed by the U.S. military research arm DARPA yeah. and by groups like Boston Dynamics, uh-huh. we see these pedal drones that mimic animals like pack mules yeah. or like humans. So we're getting closer to this ED-209 sort of world of of total <laughs> robots that are like people and that can think for themselves and engage in, in war policing. Um, it, it also seems that now that drones have become mainstream, they'll be easier to use in everyday policing. There's, mm-hmm. um, I found this interesting excerpt in a uh, Guardian article about drone operators who were coming out against the activity of drone warfare itself. And the, yeah. the article is called Life as a Drone Operator. Ever Step on Ants and Never Give It a Second Thought? Question mark By Ed uh, Pilkington. And in it, one of the operators, he's talking about how proactive the new re- newest recruits to the drone program were in wanting to kill. And he remembers one training session with a student uh, in which they were flying live over Afghanistan. And the student said that a group of people on the ground looked suspicious. And so the commander, Haas, he, he asked why. And the student replied, because they look like they're up to no good. <laughs> and the instructor said, so what would you do? Would you act on that? And the student said, sure. And Haas immediately pulled him out of the seat of the drone and took over the mission himself. And he failed the student. And... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Moves, it removes the uh, the proximity of the other humans you're killing. That's right. And so he tried to teach this lesson to students to understand that their main mission is preservation of innocent life. But he, he failed this student, and he was later rebuked by senior officers for having done so. And they told wow. him that they were short of bodies, and they needed to keep the drones flying. And they ordered him to pass students in the future so that there would be sufficient numbers trained and ready to go. Mm-hmm. So this is how it's actually playing out in practice. Um, a second prediction, I think, uh, from RoboCop is the involvement of private sec- the private sector in military-style policing. So the government still manages aerial warfare for, for the time being anyway, but that'll probably change pretty soon. But many governments, particularly the U.S., they outsource policing to the private sector. The idea that the military would be outsourced to the private sector was a very fanciful idea in the 1980s Cold War. But by 2002, in the War on Terror, thousands of mercenaries were being used by the American state to run private security and a host of other roles in the invasion and occupation of Iraq essentially yeah, of course, yeah. policing the country, right? Once they had disbanded the Iraqi security state. Even one, remember one of the um, iconic scenes from the initial invasion of Iraq was those uh, Americans that had been completely burnt to a crisp and were dragged through the streets and hung up, right? Strung up. And those were mercenaries. Mm-hmm. 
called con- they're usually yeah. called contractors, right? In the parlance. So, um, but they're armed and they're there to uh, play the role that the military doesn't want to do. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. bla- you know, uh, Blackwater being the most famous example of that. So yeah. th- these are the material realities of Verhoeven's prediction. It's uh, boots on the ground, whether they're hired guns or, or killer robots. Mm-hmm. So Verhoeven, you know, but he he also he goes into the American psyche around all of this. I think uh, this is another interesting thing about Verhoeven is that he is actually a celebrated academic scholar of the historical Jesus. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's got degrees in that. <laughs> and That's a surprising. Is there some uh, Jesus iconology in the in Robocop? <laughs> Funny you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> so he is Robocop is definitely a late twentieth century American Jesus. It's like there's no <laughs> doubt about it, right? Like he sacrifices his 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 regular ordinary life so that yeah. he can rise again and he can be a, a force for justice and truth. And when Murphy well, it's, a, it's is, a little known fact that when Jesus actually came back for three days after being crucified, he actually also went on a shooting spree <laughs> of the gangsters of Palestine. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's the the, the Bible. I think the Bible glazes over it a little bit. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he burst into a boardroom of the the Roman uh, local consulate. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, again, it's like he. Verhoeven gives these little subtle hints here and there. So when Murphy's mutilated, the first wound is to his hand, like Christ being nailed to the cross. There's a real kind of like passion of the Christ type type vibe going on here while the gang's taunting Murphy just as the Roman soldiers taunt Christ with his crown of thorns. Um, and then, you know, even at the end, another subtle hint to Jesus is that to kill Boddicker to go over and kill him. Boddicker is the the embodiment of pure evil in this movie. Yeah. Robocop has to walk on water at the end of the movie to get to him. Yeah. All right. So there's like water on the ground and he's walking over it. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, it it I it could be planned and also th- those are just cool scenes in movies. Could be. It could be. It could just be a total coincidence. But I think considering how much thought Verhoeven puts into these things, yeah, that it's on purpose. But it could just be a coincidence. Who knows? Well, since it's a work of art, I would like I'll, I'll go along with this for sure. Uh, <laughs> but like to some extent, it feels you know like people do numbers. You can find every number in everything at any point. You know, like uh, numberology or whatever it is. Yeah, it's like that documentary on on uh, Kubrick that goes into all the supposedly supposed little hints about every scene in his movies and what they meant about him faking the moon landing or whatever <laughs> oh yeah yeah because he wanted to leave a paper trail that's like right a, a visual trail so yeah. people could find out uh all right yeah so that's interesting so robocop is jesus is not a sentence i thought that <laughs> yeah but this, despite him t- touching on these old world you know mythologies he Verhoeven what he understands most of all is that America's true spiritual essence of this era and in the go-go 80s that spiritual essence is that greed is good money and corporations they're the kings 
the rot of post-industrial neoliberalism leads to social collapse, violence, and the results of those ultimately are fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it'd be good to define fascism at this point, since it's sort of an overused word nowadays. It's a, it's a bit of a catch-all term now, yeah. Yeah. I think there are a couple ways to de- define it. I don't know if you have a, a preferred way of defining it that you I want mean, to offer up. Of course I do, but I'll let you go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I think there are a couple ways that satisfy it for me, but the one that I think best applies to RoboCop is in a largest sense that it's a merger of the business class with a police state. That's mm-hmm. how I would describe it. Um, RoboCop, he's essentially a tool in this fascist system, as shown by his immediate and deadly dealing with the criminals in Detroit. He doesn't really question it. He just goes out and commits acts of violence on behalf of the corporate state. Uh, And ultimately what makes him a hero in the movie is that he rejects his origin and he goes after the the true villains, the worst villains, even Mm. if they work for the corporation that technically owns him. So, (laughs) (laughs) but he's still, Robocop is still a tool of the system at this point. And it's Mm -hmm. only at the end when he gives his human name that he reasserts his humanity. Um, But again, we're kind of on a cliffhanger even at the end because he's still in the service of OCP. We don't know where it's going to go. And and, and we know that he's not fully free of OCP in the sequels, even though you ignored him for... (laughs) Yeah, I I would have liked to have seen a sequel where they have RoboCop asserting more of his independence in the face of the system, but oh well, maybe like, someone will I reboot think it again for the the, the rights of cyborgs in America. <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> all those uh, was it hobo cops? All those hobo cops. They need a savior as well, you know. <laughs> hobo uh, cops. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, this time period, America is definitely in need of a savior in the 80s, the 70s. 1970s America is just a series of humiliating defeats abroad, right? And most notably in Vietnam and the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the hostage crisis. Then you get paired up with that in the 70s, get the energy shock of high oil prices that drives up inflation. Uh, President Carter in the 70s, he gives a speech that would come to be known as the American malaise speech. You don't really get much more depressing than that as a definition of an era that you're in a malaise. So uh, who can be the hero that America needs at this point in time? Well, then you enter onto the stage the charismatic former movie star Ronald Reagan. And what's Ronald Reagan's campaign slogan? Do you know know his campaign slogan from the 1980s? I don't remember his campaign slogan. His campaign slogan was, Make America Great Again. For those who've abandoned hope, we'll restore hope and we'll welcome them into a great national crusade to make America great again. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) is that ring any bells? That's very clever, because that's very clever that he managed to steal that from Trump. (laughs) Go into the future and... Yeah, it was cool that he built a time machine and was able to go into the future. Right? Ronald Reagan. Yeah. yeah, of course. So when that 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 begs a question though, like it's uh, so Trump when he thinks about the the time that America was great, like it's an undefined time, but it clearly wasn't the same time that Reagan had in mind. 
So this is the second, my second, that's funny that you bring that up because this is my second definition of fascism. And it's that fascism is pining for a time that never existed. Yeah, like a, a, an ideal time that never existed. A yeah. bit like people, yeah, yeah. So in the yeah. case of Ronald Reagan and his campaigns, they were very explicitly looking back to the 1950s. And then in the case of Donald Trump, it's looking back to the 1980s and the Reagan era in many respects. So it's interesting that he's sort of a continuation shifted forward 30 years. <laughs> um, there are two famous campaign ads from the Reagan era. One of them deals with fear in the external world. It's a video of a, a big brown bear and it signifies the Russian menace. There is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. But there's also the yin to that yang, and it's the famous Morning in America ad. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? the Reagan era thanks to this sort of idea of mourning in America and making America great again it's, it marks a break from this pessimistic period in the 1970s mm -hmm. and it's a rebirth of America in essence um, but even as this is going on there's the, there's the drug war which is incredibly violent and how is that going to be shifted? Well, yeah, you get the cheery domestic message of Nancy Reagan promoting just say no, as if that's the solution to the drug crisis. If we just have the will to do so, to say no to drugs, no to drug dealers, then we'll come out the other side, all right. So on the domestic front, we, Reaganism is basically about escalating the drug war, and it's pushing for faith in the free market and deregulation to solve the stagflation of the, the President Carter years. Uh, I think it's fair to say that these sorts of policies brought America closer to the RoboCop hellscape that America would actually become. That and also basically uh, ending any kind of support for mental health care and releasing 
the uh, mentally ill into the streets to just become the general homeless population. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with the deregulation and the free markets, we get an, a, an acceleration of deindustrialization. And of course, that's going to impact a place like Detroit the worst. So basically, you have a continued decline of urban areas with factories shutting down, and you get the rise of the Rust Belt region of the Midwest. The uh, value of the dollar was increased to essentially curb inflation, but then this mm-hmm. means it makes U.S. manufacturing uncompetitive in the world economy. Yeah, without, which without, accelerates exactly. So it accelerates this deindustrialization. It without these urban jobs, you get the acceleration of white flight from the urban areas to the suburbs, which completely removes the tax base from urban areas and essentially depopulates urban centers except for uh, blacks who are unable to leverage property to escape because they Mm -hmm. couldn't take advantage of the post-Second World War economic boom to buy up property due to racist mortgage lending and bylaw policies that we've come to know now Mm -hmm. as redlining. So there are large uh, African-American neighborhoods that are, you know, they're often separated by railroad tracks or they end up being cut off uh, by major yeah. highways on purpose. Yeah, like they become physically cut off. Yeah. In the, in the, the urban development, they, they become, yeah. And that's the thing you can see, you can still see today on maps and on like tons of things. There's a physical barrier. Exactly. Yeah, Chicago Mayor uh, Richard Daly, he actually built this uh, the Dan Ryan Expressway and it, it bisected completely through a successful African-American neighborhood called Black Bottom. In you know you know it's um or no actually that, that Black Bottom was in Detroit so there these are two separate cases you have one with a major highway in Chicago that that destroys the African community the African American community there and then you also have a similar infrastructure uh, project at the same time that bisects uh, a neighborhood called Black Bottom in Detroit. So throughout the Midwest, you have these racist policies that are completely destroying uh, these neighborhoods that are alienating people at the same time as deindustrialization and uh, white flight and uh, all all the ensuing social problems that come from that. So typically we refer to this sort of uh, deregulation as neoliberalism which I think can be confusing for people who think of Reagan and and um, Thatcher and Britain as conservatives. You know, you think of conservatism and traditional conservatives, they want to, by definition, conserve the existing social order. But these conservatives were very different. They, yeah. you know, um, instead of wanting to maintain things like they are right now, the neoliberals, they want to tear down the old world and they want to build up a new one. Nope. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. On based on new principles, but they, they, but it's not, it's not a complete shift in a way that they did not want to change into ruling powers. They just wanted to change in the way um, wealth is created. Yeah, exactly. So, um, they they used this idea. They used a practical argument that they wanted to avoid the stagflation of the 1970s. But there was, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just sound economic principles. There was an ideological component to the Reagan revolution. And that could probably be best summed up by Ronald Reagan's 
famous line that government isn't the solution to our problems, government is the problem. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. From time to time, we've been tempted to believe that society has become too complex to be managed by self-rule, that government by an elite group is superior to government for, by, and of the people. Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? And neoliberals prioritize the corporate over governmental power. Mm -hmm. um, the idea is that the corporation should take over the functions of the state wherever possible. The uh, OCP corporation, it's kind of like the Weyland-Yutani corporation from the Alien series. It's just, yeah. it's like capitalism exemplified in the future where it's just been distilled to its purest sense. You know, it'll, it'll yeah. pursue, in, in Alien, it'll pursue profit uh, through Regardless the, of anything, right? Yeah, yeah, so... Classic trope in sci-fi. Totally, yeah. It's a great classic trope. It's that it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's OCP building killer robots or whether it's uh, Whalen yutani looking for a kill alien that they can make into a super weapon. It's that the, the poor people, the blue-collar people, they're always screwed. So in RoboCop, it's the beat cops who are having to you know, be sacrifice their bodies to become RoboCops. <laughs> and in Alien, it's these... They're essentially space truckers, right? They're just <laughs> transporting cargo through space, and then they, too, have to pay for the consequence, the, the cost <laughs> of the corporation's greed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the same time, as, as society's being completely deregulated, we also have uh, an influx of crack cocaine is essentially a relief to crushing poverty in deindustrialized uh, de zones, and in many cases, the only employment opportunity in minority neighborhoods. Uh, the drug war increased police in blighted communities, and it made drug dealers all the more powerful. Now, as Richard Nixon said in, this, in the 70s, said drugs are public enemy number one. Uh, and uh, just like in the case of uh, outlaws like Dillinger or Babyface Nelson or Machine Gun Kelly, they'd have to be met with violence from the state. They are, the, you know, the face of public enemy number one. Drugs... In Robocop, they're, they're you know, or, or in this world, really, in the 1980s America world, they're symbolic of this inherent evil. And drug dealers, they're killers. They're, there's no mm. redeeming quality for them, right? And this is how we end up with this 1980s cocaine culture in America. You know, from the nightclub scene to the crack houses to the spike in gang violence. Um, I, I'd highly recommend if anyone's interested in getting a better sense of the America that RoboCop is inspired by, that they check out the documentary Cocaine Cowboys. Have you ever seen it? I haven't seen it, no. Highly recommend it. There's uh, there's two of them in the series, I think. 
Uh, first one's super for looking at the the social aspect of it, I think. And it, it what it does is it goes into the narcos in Colombia. It goes into the American end, the smugglers. It goes into the dealers. It goes into the violent events like the Miami-Dade shootout. And all of this led to Time Magazine's declaration that Florida was paradise lost. Um, the proxy wars that accompany this in Latin America, they even saw direct cooperation between the CIA and drug-backed military juntas like the Contras. And those Contras, they exported drugs to America, much like Jones's cooperation with the drug gangs in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I see what you did there. <laughs> the, uh, the legal elites in both cases, they, they conspire with the illegal gangs to control a certain jurisdiction to the point where it's just blurred. There's no real distinction between them. They overlap in how they operate. So mm-hmm. it, what I like about RoboCop in this sense is that we get both kinds of, of the, the typical 1980s villain. We have... The Gordon Gecko from Wall Street, evil business elites, they're working in conjunction with the drug-fueled underclass of total maniacs, right? And it's, it's kind of funny, I think, to, it, it's really interesting to note that there's this parallel between Verhoeven's observations of 1980s America and the same sort of instinctive line of attack that propelled Donald Trump's presidential campaign. Trump, for instance, he attacked both the petty criminals, like MS-13, and also the corporate overlords who were shipping jobs overseas. Mm -hmm. He sees this, 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 them as sort of like all part of an America that is broken. And it's because we don't have a strong, violent, fascist state to be able to make the America that we want. Mm-hmm. Um, but even within the business elite, there's a there's a division. Verhoeven's very keen to point this out that there is the rapacious Gordon Gecko capitalism that is exhibited by Dick Jones, who were, who's willing to work with the Bodiger gang at all costs to secure his position within the corporation. But then there's also the more traditional capitalism of country club Republicans, like the old man yeah. CEO and, and Morton. They're just kind of in, more interested in, in another trope of fascism, which is order, order above all. Whereas Dick Jones is fine with instability and violence, which is another yeah. fascist trope. The, the old man and Morton, they just want like an orderly city they want to build the, up uh the the delta city suburban community so that they can have total order yeah and it's this idea of the benevolent rich man who's like you know with like the the like the what's the name of the head of the 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 board like uh, he's the, just she, referred to as uh the old man or the or the ceo the old, oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need a name <laughs> um because it, it, it's this idea that like if if you can find out where the bad apples are in the in the in the corporate world then you know like yes you make money but you don't do it in an evil way um and yeah i don't know like i, I was thinking when you gave that example of the robot just killing a board member mid-meeting um like it, it is the governments of the ocp evil or just callous because the callousness is an evil on its own 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that... it. It's like they're right. not trying to make Detroit a hellish place. They're trying to rebuild it in their image of uh, a totally planned community. We're going to right. make this suburban utopia, and then it's going to radiate outwards, and everything will be better. Everything will be perfect. We'll live in a neoliberal paradise. It's such so much different from Dick Jones, who literally only cares about his selfish uh, interests yeah. in advancing his own position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's interesting. <laughs> it, it's it's such. It's amazing how clairvoyant Verhoeven was in this aspect because, sure, things were falling apart in the 80s, but the idea that you would have this massive corporation that would essentially be the savior of a Rust Belt town that had been ruined by deindustrialization still seemed kind of fanciful in the late 80s. But... The way that OCP makes a deal with Detroit is exactly how cities will bend over backwards now to get a deal. Like, we saw Foxconn, Mm -hmm. which is a major Asian industrial manufacturer, go into Wisconsin and get a sweetheart deal there. And then we saw, it was what, last year, where all the cities of of North America, essentially, like dozens and dozens of cities, tried in vain... To attract Amazon's second headquarters, they would give away everything that Amazon wanted. Yeah, um, we see it now in our own country in Toronto, right, where they're willing to give Google essentially the entire waterfront of Toronto. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's. I haven't seen that. <laughs> it's it really is the dystopian world that Verhoeven envisaged that there would be these this mass of North America that would be desperate, that would be economically depressed, and they would do whatever it took to appease a corporation just on the hope that it could get them out of the tailspin to destruction. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of the domestic front. I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, too, about the foreign front of Reaganism. So Reaganism's foreign front was entirely about confronting the so-called evil empire of the Soviet Union. And while Reagan in himself in his diaries, he wrote about how it was all bluster and that it was basically for domestic consumption, the Soviet Union, uh, they took it all at face value. They thought that Reagan actually did want to nuke them into oblivion when he said that he wanted the Soviet Union reduced to the dustbin of history. They, they thought that was actually literal. So, um, yeah. ironically, this, the Soviet Union was one of the keenest, uh, you know, it was at its keenest phases for de-escalation. Like, it, it, it realized it couldn't keep fighting this Cold War indefinitely. It didn't have the resources to do it. So, um, it was kind of in a benign, relatively benign state from the mid-1960s up until its invasion of yeah, Afghanistan, which it also didn't want to do, but kind of was yeah. dragged into in, the, in 1979. Because um, during this period, it was under the steady conservative leadership of uh, Leonid Brezhnev. But uh, once Yuri Andropov became general secretary after Brezhnev's death in 1982, the situation became much more unstable because uh, Andropov, he was a 
ex-chairman of the KGB, so he was his whole worldview was very much about being paranoid of a U.S. preemptive strike. Uh, and, you know, like, you add to that Reagan's investment in advanced weaponry, which most of the time didn't work, but the Soviet Union didn't know that. They thought, the Soviet Union thought really highly of America. They thought that they could accomplish basically anything. And so even just presenting this advanced weaponry scared the hell out of the Soviet Union. And pair that up with his his actual moral crusade against communism, that it wasn't just uh, you know, great power politics, but that communism was something akin to Nazism and had to be destroyed from the world, essentially. So, uh, but then, you know, at the same time, uh, the Soviet Union has qu quite a bit of a big problem with corruption. They're trying to fight that, and Dropov, he elevates uh, Mikhail uh, Gorbachev to, uh, a as a young reformer, as a means to um, fight this corruption. And, you know, one, one thing that's kind of interesting to note is that um, in 1985, Gorbachev, he becomes the first and last uh, general secretary who was actually born under the Soviet Union rather than Tsarist Russia, just to get an idea of how how the Soviet leadership was, you know, legitimately paranoid of, yeah. of Reaganism, of America, because they knew what it was like to be in an unstable world where people, where the, the enemies of communism legitimately wanted to destroy your movement and kill you. So Gorbachev, he comes in, um, you know, he, he, he kind of dulled this crusade a little bit because he presented a more open face, but he still couldn't stop the anti-Soviet feelings in the Reagan administration because they weren't really guided by practicality this was a no an ideological was, crusade correct it served a political purpose rather than uh, like a defensive one. exactly uh and then there's corporate elements to that that too that i won't go into but you know if you can stir up a military fever you can buy and sell a hell of a lot more uh hyper expensive weaponry so there is the corporate element as well that we see from robocop so um, the Reagan administration, their emphasis on killer technology and nuclear warfare, it both influenced and was influenced by pop culture. They have their signature weapon system. It's called uh, Strategic Defense Initiative. It's also known as SDI, or more commonly known as Star Wars. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I didn't have this on the tip of my phone. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Star Wars. Yeah. I just figured since you're such a fan, that might be your favorite yeah, weapon oh, system. I would go with right away, right? <laughs> I, so, I could have blurted out anything. It's good I didn't. <laughs> um, so it's interesting because this this Star Wars, this SDI initiative, or that's redundant, but SDI, uh, this is something that dates back even to the original uh, evil people, the original fascists, the Nazis. They refer to this kind of a super weapon as a, a Wunderwaffe, or a miracle weapon. And they had this idea, the Nazis, that there would be this massive leap in technological discovery on their end that would allow them to outclass the enemy's capabilities so completely that their victory would be certain. So uh -huh. the Nazis, they tried a bunch of Wunderwaffe with no success on, on the battlefield, really. They had the world's first jet fighter called the ME-262, uh, they had the yeah. Tiger tank with its big-ass 88-millimeter uh, gun, and they had mm -hmm. the, the V-1 and V-2 rocket programs. Hitler!
Hitler's most terrifying secret weapon, the V-2 rocket, is disclosed. Jet propelled, the V-2 rises faster and faster until a speed of 50 miles a minute is attained. And no defense against it has been discovered. Another V-2 is launched. A weapon that just one year earlier might have changed the entire course of the war. And here's an interesting element going back to Verhoeven's childhood. Verhoeven, because Holland is so close to England, it's the perfect launch spot to bombard London and England with V-1 and V-2 rockets. So Verhoeven actually grew up near one of these rocket launch sites. And yeah. because it was such a high-value target, the Allies constantly bombarded his neighborhood. And bombs yeah. bombs back in World War II were incredibly inaccurate. Like, the, the Allies, the reason why they had to carpet bomb was because of this inherent inaccuracy in their bombers. If you wanted mm -hmm. to target one rocket site, you basically have to level the entire area. Uh, if, and so... This means that Verhoeven, growing up as a child, he walks out his front door and he sees his neighborhood blown to pieces, his neighbors that he knows are killed, died, you know, lying in the streets, rotting away. I think this kind of thing is going to leave a, a very lasting impression on a developing mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the, Nazi, the Nazi rocket program, it was conceived of uh, as a, a space program. You know, the, the rockets... These rockets, they were meant to bring Nazi astronauts into orbit, where they, they could, <laughs> this is ridiculous, but they, they wanted to bring Nazi astronauts into orbit so that they could build a giant ray gun yeah. that they could use to melt their enemies. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> just to, to show you how, how ridiculous fascism gets with its uh, ideas of super weapons leading to order. But you know, ultimately, it was a Nazi, Werner von Braun, who led NASA, NASA and their successful journey of, of men into space. So, so it did kind of work in the end. Um, <laughs> um, so part of this part of this journey into space, uh, you know, it began with satellite technology, which the U.S. would depend upon in theory to be able to make SDI a reality. Uh, in theory, at least, the SDI was a, a satellite program that, like the Nazi ray gun, it would melt Soviet uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles that were carrying nuclear warheads before these missiles could strike the United States or our allies. And though we and the Soviets regularly plead that we only seek peace, the buildup continues. This impotent policy is ironically called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. It presumes that neither superpower will launch a first strike, for if attacked, the other will retaliate with devastating force. Deterrence is not defense. Once a Soviet ICBM is launched, all the deterrence in the world won't prevent it from hitting its target. We can only retaliate. We must end this moment-to-moment -moment threat of annihilation. On March 23, 1983, President Reagan appealed to the American people to try to find a way to render nuclear weapons obsolete. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept 
and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Um, but we now know that the Star Wars program, this ray gun, was as much of a farce then, you know, as it is now if we wanted to build it. It's just as ridiculous as the Nazi idea of a ray gun. Fair still, enough, yeah. But still, the SDI, it spoke to a real fear during the Cold War that I think is best exemplified in another fictional movie that I hope we talk about someday, and that's The Terminator in 1984, <laughs> where you get you have an advanced computer network that's known as Skynet, and it launches all the world's nuclear missiles to destroy human civilization so that, again, you know, malignant robots can take over. Um, yeah. But there's also at this, this time period, this, this, this 80s time period, you don't just have the destruction of the world with nukes, you have the more optimistic Cold War engagement in a movie like Top Gun, right, where you have America's ace pilots, they're the best of the yeah. best, they're the knights of the sky, and they harass the Soviet Air Force, and it's, yeah, it's good it's fun like, for yeah. everybody, right? serve my country be the best fighter pilot in navy sir you want to know who the best is that's him Iceman. it's the way he flies ice cold no mistakes you need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy i'm maverick maverick does your mother not like you or something i gotta do something here I, I i still can't believe it i gotta give you your dream shot you two characters are going to top gun <laughs> You are the top one percent of all naval aviators. The elite will make you better. You figured it out yet? What's that? Who's the best pilot? I'm an instructor at this school. I see 20 new hot shots every eight weeks. Every time you go up in the air, you're unsafe. That's right. I am dangerous. Not your flying. It's your attitude. And I guess when I see something, I go right after it. It takes a lot more than just fancy flying. I got a family to think about. I can't afford to blow this. You're the only family I've got. I'm not gonna let you down. Gentlemen, this school is about combat. Ten more seconds, then I've got him. There are no points for second place. What you do up there, it's dangerous. But you've got to go on. Ice. Yes, sir. Hollywood. Yes, sir. Sector 2. Maverick, you back him up with Merlin on Ready 5. Yes, sir. There are MiGs in the area and tensions are high. If you witness a hostile act, you will return fire. Gentlemen, this is the real thing. This is what you've been trained for. Three MiGs dead ahead, coming down the left side. You are America's best. One MiG close like high, one MiG close like high. Make us proud. I got radar lock, you clear the fire. I got a good lock. Fire! Fire! Tom Cruise, Kelly McGillis. Top Gun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, good old-fashioned action movie. You know, that's uh, the U.S. is always the hero. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's you expect everyone else to be the villain. It's easy. So it's basically it's a time of both nuclear dread at the hands of unfeeling machines that could potentially wipe us out, but also American bravado in the face of this existential menace. 
So, but what's certain is that Americans, true, you know, red, white, and blue-blooded Americans, they're the good guys, right, in this story. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they do, what the consequences are, because America has the right intentions. So it doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at 1980s cinema, it could be James Bond or it could be Rambo, but they're both helping out the Mujahideen against the Soviets. Yeah. And, and we know as a fact that violence is going to solve the world's problems. Yeah. Right? Well, we, yeah. Yeah. And we, we knew this. We knew that the Cold War, as long as it took, which could be forever, it was a war against evil. Um, so I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit now about the use of violence in, in a movie like RoboCop. Yeah. Um, so the, the movie received a ton of X ratings from the MPAA when they first showed it. Um, it took them a bunch of cuts before they could finally make enough to get an R rating. Uh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Because it was like so graphic at the time. Yeah, that was it. I mean, it just scared the hell out of them. Uh, I think what really upset them is that it's not just gunshots, but there's actual gore. There's actual, yeah. you know, bodies bursting, essentially, right? I mean, yeah. the people in this movie, they just kind of, like, explode in exaggerated ways. Um, well, I guess, which which you can probably tie back to the childhood. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, you understand the actual horror of, like, a war, or chaotic warfare. Yeah, you know that when a bomb hits a person or near a person, that they basically become, like, they're a, a big bag of, of gooey blood. And that mm -hmm. they te when a human body is hit with the high pressures of a bullet or explosives, they tend to burst. Mm -hmm. That's what happens, and it's it's just it's a more accurate wave, even though it's kind of over the top. It's more accurate than a lot of movies that minimize the consequences of violence. Like I think it, it's interesting to think of of a series like The Avengers, where there are some mm -hmm. urban battles that must claim the lives of hundreds of thousands of people and handicap yeah. hundreds of thousands of more in horrible ways that they'll have to live with for the rest of their lives. And yeah. That, and that those are considered children's movies. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> a disconnect. Uh, and I, this is another insight that I think that Verhoeven has into the American mentality of censorship, that the consequences, that thinking about the consequences is way less important than blood, and blood is way less important than nudity, which is why I think Verhoeven's also pretty obsessed with showing nudity whenever he can. Uh, it kind of mm -hmm. reminds me of um, the Colonel Kurtz quote in Apocalypse Now, when he's describing the hypocrisy of the American military in Vietnam. Fuck 
on their airplane because it's obscene. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah that's a that, i mean yeah it, it is the hypocrisy of it all one of the consequences of these censored cuts is that it actually makes the movie more traumatic rather than less in the boardroom scene where the guy gets shot dozens of times it's funny that a guy runs over to him and calls for a medic because there's <laughs> no way anyone can survive such an insane barrage of bullets but if you yeah. cut down on the bullets then suddenly this satirical scene becomes the case of a serious accidental death. It's, it's, it's yeah, yeah, tragic yeah, the, now. Like, actually trying to save the guy's life rather than... Yeah, yeah the satire is dead. The enforcement droid, Series 209, is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. 209 is currently programmed for urban pacification, but that is only the beginning. After a successful tour of duty in old Detroit, we can expect 209 to become the hot military product for the next decade. Dr. McNamara. We'll need an arrest subject. Mr. Kinney. Yes, sir. Would you come up and give us a hand, please? Yes, sir. Mr. Kinney is going to help us simulate a typical arrest and disarming procedure. Mr. Kinney, use your gun in a threatening manner. Point it at Ed 209. Yes, sir. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. I think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny. You now have 15 seconds to comply. You are in direct violation of Penal Code 113, Section 9. You now have 5 seconds to comply. Furthermore, the, the violence committed by the criminals, as we discussed earlier, it's just wantonly sadistic. So unlike, say, the Avengers, there's, there's nothing cool about their casual violence. There's nothing inspirational about it. The, the, the criminals, they're cruelly mocking Murphy as they're mutilating. You, you know that these are the bad guys. Violence itself is just seen as, as a bad and horrific thing. And mm -hmm. people are legitimately fearful in the face of violence in this movie because of it, because there are consequences. The board members, they even abandoned that guy in the beginning, their fellow board member, one of their own colleagues that presumably they've worked with a ton in front of this killer robot so that they can save their own lives. There's no heroic attempt 
to save this man. All the other board members are afraid. They're completely alienated from one another, and that they're openly cowards in the face of this this terrible situation. Even though they're the most powerful people in society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And so I think it's worth noting that uh, also that. Um, you know, still dealing with violence. That it's worth noting that Robocop he's programmed in that fourth directive to not be able to arrest OCP executives, right, or or deal with them in any way. Violence is never supposed Allegedly. to be meted out. Sorry, <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly, right. Um, so <laughs> violence is never supposed to be meted out against the elites. You know, you know, it's it's like our society. Prosecutors in our society they never go after the powerful. Clarence Bodiger, you are under arrest. You have the right to remain silent. Fuck you. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute! I'm protected, man. I've got protection. You have the right to an attorney. What is this shit? God damn it. God damn it! Listen to me! Listen to me, you fuck! There's another guy! He's a he's OCP, he's the senior president! Anything you say may be used against you. It's dead Jones! You cocksucker! I work for Dick Jones! Dick Jones! He's the number two guy at OCP! OCP runs the cops! You're a cop! Cop! Yes, I am a cop. I don't like it any more than you do, Reed, but listen! You listen to me, you asshole! You're talking about shutting down a major metropolitan police force! Without cops, this city would tear itself apart! The union thinks you should know there was a strike vote last night! We lost five guys last week! We're getting creamed out there, Reed! Book him. What's the charge? He's a cop killer. Shit. Just give me my fucking phone call. Unless they're forced or embarrassed into doing so, and sometimes not even that. You know, you look at the it's Panama Papers. They showed yeah, that it's billionaires, it's you know, they don't pay taxes in Canada, right? Um, yeah, th this whole point about violence that you're making is interesting because, like, my like one of the thing I was um, I was wondering about when you re you know explained the movie and how the ro the RoboCop just goes and slaughters everyone, and I was like, oh, what's the what's the do you know the lawful process to like arresting perps in RoboCop is because it seems that like just shooting down bad guys is like fine. Um, well, I mean, Robocop himself sums it up. He says, dead or alive, you're coming with me. Hey, man, 
What you reading in there? <laughs> you a college boy or something? Huh? I bet you think you're pretty smart, huh? Think you could outsmart a bullet? What do you say we find out, huh? I'm talking to you! What do you say? Huh? Huh? I'm talking to you! Drop it! That are alive, you are coming with me. I know you. You're dead. We killed you! We killed you! We killed you! That's it. Yeah. Make up your yeah, mind, so I criminal. Guess, I guess that's, that's the policy now. That's the law. Dead or alive. Yeah, it's like the Old West. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's that's much easier dead. Yeah, I mean, but if it seems absurd, right? But then if you look at policing in America, how often is it that a cop will just shoot someone without trying to intervene in a nonviolent way? Yeah, of course, yeah. No, it's true. There's a lot of examples. So, so yeah, uh, the violence is, always goes down, though. It never goes up. Um, like I was saying, like the Panama Papers showed the billionaires they don't bother to pay taxes in Canada, but then we have the, the Canadian Revenue Agency that'll spend its precious few resources going after low-income Canadians instead who, whatever, have some kind of questionable rebate or something that's worth, you know, like like yeah, $20 or something. Yeah. <laughs> Or if we look at uh, America again, no executives went to jail for banking fraud in the wake of the 2009 economic crash, despite the fact okay. that it, it easily caused more more deaths in America than 9-11. Easily. The yeah, death rate spiked yeah. from people who lost their jobs, lost their homes, uh, you know, dissolved into substance abuse. Uh, they, 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 are, they are monsters. And, you know, if we look at the, ca the recent case of Jeffrey Epstein... Having yeah. been given his sweetheart deal in exchange for preemptively not implicating other pedos in the American elite, yeah, it's just like state violence. It only goes one way, and that's towards the poor. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a yeah, of course. Um, I just have two more two more things to get through. 
one one is just a, a series of interesting small points that, that that's all my main narrative so these are just a few interesting things yeah. about the movie that don't fit into this wider narrative of fascism and violence and dystopia uh-huh. um one is one okay so i have a question for you actually <laughs> i'm really curious to hear what you think about this so what are your thoughts on his partner officer lewis and the fact that she's an independent you know she's capable she has short hair kind of making her more androgynous she she even has she has to be revealed as female initially when she's first introduced because the assumption is that murphy's partner is probably going to be male right a police officer patrolling the mean streets of detroit and then and then she so she saves she she then saves murphy at the end she's actually a heroine and you know again i see a parallel with aliens and how ripley is also this sort of dimorphous alpha female which is kind of unusual for sci-fi protagonists or really any kind of female characterization when they're usually usually women in sci-fi or horror or whatever they're the victims so it's kind of like interesting that she's both violent and independent like she beats a perp she she like beats a perp as good as a man can she's like she's as she's as equivalent as murphy yeah. Um, so, like, what do you think about that in terms of what Verhoeven is trying to say about hmm. about this world, it's, about this character? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, it makes me think of several things. Like, first of all, like, a, a lot of the characters in the movies, they're they're bigger than nature, right? They're kind of like satire of they're satire in themselves. Like, Dick Jones is just evil for the sake of being evil. Like, yeah. it's comic. So at that point, same thing with uh, Boddicker. Um, like there's like there's this sort of like it's it's bigger than nature and yet she's like I, I would wager that it's it, the script probably didn't have a, a, a like a female co-lead it probably was like just a partner or whatever mm-hmm. uh, and may, maybe Verwin like that added this to like kind of challenge the established because like also as a as a as an actress in the 80s there was sort of like there's a standard that she, that um at, uh, that she doesn't adhere to like you know like you mentioned the short hair and she's like a bit tomboyish and that that challenges the sort of like uh like c- traditional female co-lead from the movies from that era so i i don't know i think i think you're right i think maybe you wanted to challenge the established roles and tropes in movies but that's funny because it's in contradiction with a lot of other aspects of the movie yeah for sure because typically fascism is very patriarchal yeah yeah also yeah of course yeah um so like women yeah, like think... women in fascist narratives are typically either mothers or they don't exist or they're spies they're often or spies. yeah or they're bad <laughs> yeah they're often spies yeah um uh, i i see yeah yeah it's really interesting that that you see it that way as well that he's trying to say something i'm not sure what he's trying to say i'm still i'm still kind of like <laughs> racking my brain about it because there's clearly something with verhoven where he thinks the future will be gender neutral yeah and i think the two scenes in robocop and my my next movie starship troopers are, are um there's this scene in both movies that highlights this and that's he tried to do it in this movie and did a really toned down version of it and that's when they're introduced and they're in the locker room, it's a gender-neutral locker room. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point. And um, in Starship Troopers, they all shower together. That's exactly it. Like he, it's kind of like he's saying, yeah. like, okay, so got people didn't get 
what I was trying to say in RoboCop. Let's make it so everyone's naked so that it's more it's more obvious that what I'm trying to say that the future will be gender neutral. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know what he means by it, but it's it's really kind of... I think in Starship Trooper... I think, actually, I think if, if there's one meaning about it, it's that in both both fascist societies, whether it's Robocop or Starship Troopers, yeah. the idea is that these aren't... There's no gender because there's no human. There's no people there. Like, these are all tools of the fascist machinery. So why yeah, would you care about uh, genitalia? You, whether you're a cop or a soldier... Your point is to be a weapon. It's a bit Orwellian as well, right? Like, mm-hmm. in, uh, 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 that's an yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, like their their humanity is is second to the role they play, or the like the the role they play in the bigger machine. There are a few other gender uh, points that that came to mind when I was going back over RoboCop. Uh-huh. Uh, mainly that there's a lot of phallic imagery in RoboCop. Oh yeah, okay. So yeah. his whole body is destroyed, right? Like, so yeah. it, that includes his his dick. His dick gets blown yeah. off by the Bodiker gang. He's sure. now a dickless is there a man. Scene where you saw his crotch exploding? <laughs> I think in the X-rated cut, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll I'll try to find it. Uh, I'll make I'll make I'll make it the still for the podcast episode if I can find it. Um, <laughs> um, so he's he's a dickless man. But then he gets a large handgun, a comically large handgun, to compensate for it. So, from what I was, I, I read they had initially used a Desert Eagle, which I personally shot. It's quite a big gun. It's quite powerful. But even it's a 50 caliber, right? So it's pretty ridiculous for handgun. But even that apparently wasn't big enough. So they had to modify. I think it was a Beretta 92 that they modified to make it even larger just to emphasize that okay look murphy not only is he back but he's got a bigger cock than he ever could have had as a man and and, and so from that we get that classic scene where we have all the female police on the firing line at the police station and they're all firing these tiny little pea shooters like 38 handguns 38 revolvers and then they're they all look over and they're in total awe of, of robocops just enormous hard-hitting piece yeah um yeah <laughs> and to show how much of an alpha how much of a, a chad in the modern parlance robocop is once he gets his new big dick what does he do with it he aims it to castrate a rapist using his, his alphaness drop the gun you are under arrest Thank you for your cooperation. Good night. I'll buy that for a dollar. Take it in!
Let the woman go. You are under arrest. You better back up, pal! Anyway, I'll get. I'm gonna get off this track now because it seems like I'm making you uncomfortable. Uh. No, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I just um, like I, I, yeah. I understand why you associate like the size of the gun with his dick. Yeah. But for me, it almost feels like well, of, but then of course they would have given Robocop a big fucking gun. Like it doesn't like he's a robot cop. Like, totally. <laughs> he needs a bigger gun than the regular cop. It's so true, but like a stronger version. I, I, I couldn't agree more that there's a practicality to it as well, but it's, I mean, it's it's a trope, obviously, right? That a big gun is yeah, is, yeah. is a big dick, is the idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, it's, it's spelled out in this movie. Yeah. So, um, getting off of the penis talk, um, there, there are just a handful of brilliant predictions from this movie that I'd like to go through. So, do you remember the Yamaha Sports Heart advertisement? Is it time for that big operation? This may be the most important decision of your life. So come down and talk to one of our qualified surgeons. Here at the Family Heart Center, we feature the complete Jarvik line. Series 7 Sports Heart by Jensen. Yamaha, you picked the heart. Extended warranties, financing. Qualifies for health tax credit. And remember, we care. The, um, no, I don't remember the Yamaha Sports. So Robocop's great in that Verhoeven finally gets to, to do these sorts of uh, advertisements. They they make them re- the the ones in Starship Troopers are amazing. I can't wait to talk about those. But they start <laughs> off in Robocop, and one of them is for a Yamaha Sports Heart, and it's just yeah. su- it's such an incredible predictive advertisement because the Yamaha Sports Heart it uh, it comes with there's a tax credit for it, and they also offer financing options. So it's just it's such a, a great statement on the the private healthcare in the United States. Yeah. That's just every year just gets more and more absurd. People bankrupting <laughs> themselves and and being screwed over by insurers or being offered incentives to be able to purchase medical devices. Um, there's another advertisement, and this is great. It's for the uh, a super low gas mileage car. Because bigger is better. 6,000 SUX, an American tradition. So this is amazing because it, it, it presages the SUV that would become yeah. a dominant car of the last yeah. quarter century or so. It predicts that this is what people would want, that they would actually want from a time when cars got super efficient because of the oil spike in the 70s, people would go yeah. back with cheap oil and get as inefficient an engine as they could. 
and then <laughs> it, 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 it's kind of a yeah it's kind of a it represents the whole uh, economic system uh, disregard for consequences too right it's, it's yeah nice. it's, it's a good piece yeah <laughs> yeah it really is like a neoliberal fuck you it's like uh, you know what I'm gonna do something stupid why because I'm an individual and I can do whatever I want well it's like Trump selling plastic straws just cause paper straws to suck yeah out of spite yeah <laughs> like like it's 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 so stupid of a night anyway for me it's very similar it's like oh yeah i'm gonna sell plastic trails i know they're bad but i can so fuck you okay yeah no you're exactly right it is the politics of spite are you in favor of banning plastic straws i do think we have bigger problems than plastic straws you know it's interesting about plastic straws so you have a little straw but what about the plates, the wrappers, and everything else that are much bigger, and they're made of the same material? So uh, the straws are interesting. Everybody focuses on the straws. There's a lot of other things to focus on, but it's an, interest, it's an interesting question. Which animates, <laughs> which animates many of our recent political movements. Of course, yeah. And then the last, the last brilliant prediction, which I had mentioned a bit earlier, was that South Africa was going to was going to hold the world hostage with nuclear weapons. So obviously South Africa didn't hold the world hostage with its nuclear program. It actually dismantled its nuclear program and also ended apartheid. But North Korea and Iran, they have certainly learned the lesson that if you do not have a nuclear weapon as a trump card, pardon the pun, that you yeah. will not be able to maintain your regime against more conventionally powerful enemies. You will well, go the way yeah. of Iraq or Libya and you, your entire society will be annihilated. Yeah, they have learned that lesson and, and unfortunately taught it to other countries. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so that's my, my analysis. I just want to end on a bit of a reading uh, from uh, a, an article in the Detroit Free P uh, Press. It's called <laughs> Who, Who's Watching the Detroit Watchmen? And it's by Nancy Kaffer. This, okay. is, th this article is really... Uh, a fantastic parallel to the discussion we've had about the Detroit of RoboCop. So here, here goes by Nancy Kaffer. I pass at least a half dozen security cameras. Because they're mounted on Dan Gilbert-owned buildings, including the Federal Reserve, where the free press now resides, I'm guessing they're among the reportedly hundreds of cameras Gilbert's security forces have installed downtown and they're wired to the Quicken Loan slash Rock Ventures LLC Security Command Center underneath the cube. Downtown tr Detroit has changed tremendously in the last decade. A wave of new development and new ownership, largely driven by Gilbert, has brought corporate and residential tenants to once underpopulated downtown buildings. And as the activity has increased, crime has dropped, according to the Detroit Police Department in large part because of private security patrols employed by dozens of downtown businesses working in tandem with the police. Corporations patrol their own buildings and campuses all the time. But because Gilbert's holdings sprawl across downtown, and because Detroit's need is so dire, the reach of Rock Ventures and other private corporate security has expanded. Increasingly, corporate security is actively patrolling public spaces using tactics more in line with public police departments than private security guards. Many downtown security forces employ off-duty Detroit cops. The results of the joint effort have been incredibly effective, 
says the Detroit police spokesman. Before they were separate uh, companies with their own security concerns, but safety is everyone's business, so everyone's working in tandem, including the police department, he said. But we're always the primary law enforcement agency in the downtown area. Our security partners augment us as eyes and ears, but we are the law enforcement presence. If it's a crime, we handle it. Let's say somebody's hanging out on a corner, but there's no bus stop there. We would watch that person. Are they waiting to do something? It's about having situational awareness. This is uh, this is uh, some new guy called uh, Lynch. He's uh, on the security team. Um, the, uh, and Lynch's team bought bait cars wired with GPS. DTE security works most often with Wayne State University's police force, which generally responds within 90 seconds, he said. Because cars are usually stolen or broken into by a small number of people working as a team, aggressive enforcement is successful at shutting theft rings down. The bait cars we put out here in the past, they aren't even out of the car before they're getting arrested, Lynch said. It's been such a positive experience when we put our bait cars out now, they don't even get broken into. Now DTE has acquired bait bikes, which serve largely the same function. Uh, the police uh, spokesman, he uh, was unaware of a federal lawsuit filed earlier this year by the American Civil Liberties Union against the Detroit 300 Conservancy, the nonprofit Detroit uh, downtown Detroit partnership subsidiary that operates Campus uh, Martius Park and Guardsmark, which patrols it. The lawsuit claims that those entities monitored one political protest group and barred another one from marching, collecting sig uh, petition signatures, and distributing leaflets at the park. The Conservancy could argue that because it is Campus Martius's operator, this public-seeming park is not actually a public space. That would raise another question. Who is downtown and its public spaces for? And what? And who exactly makes those decisions? And then, um, so that was an initial piece that, that they went into. She did a follow-up piece, and there's just one excerpt from that that I wanted to, to highlight about Quicken Loans operation. Uh, so they were initially shamed. They, uh, I kind of edited that one to make it short, so I, I skipped a bunch of parts. But basically, they, <laughs> the Quicken Loans said, like, oh, we, op you know, like some bullshit corporate uh, press release, like, we always, uh, you know, like, operate at the highest standards, blah, 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 blah. But because they didn't actually answer questions, they were kind of shamed in, by that initial piece into opening up their operations to the media. And that yeah. article, it's called uh, "Watching Dan Gilbert's Watchmen," and here's the here's a key line from it that that I found. Uh, Matt Cullen, uh, the Rock President CEO, and Dan Gilbert's right hand man told me, with apparent sincerity, that the company understands it must be more transparent about its security practices. So now I know a little more about how Rock's uh, command center operates. But here's the problem: only at Cullen's discretion. Public police agencies may not be as universally forthcoming as reporters would prefer, but there are legal mechanisms to make them disclose information. Those don't apply to private companies like Rock, and that means answers to those big picture questions, how decisions are made, and how those decisions shape our downtown, continue to elude. So, any thoughts on that, on how Detroit is literally turning into RoboCop? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought you were about to drop uh, like a uh, like drop on us that uh, those are actually like newspaper articles from Robocop and how <laughs> they actually relate to Detroit today. So yeah, I don't know. I guess um, I guess we should uh, be wary of bipedal robots coming over. Yeah, if if Quicken Loan decides to partner with 
Boston Dynamics and get those weird, you know, like donkey-looking robots. Uh-huh. Yeah. That wouldn't even seem absurd. It wouldn't even seem like like RoboCop was making any sort of hyperbole, but that they were actively predicting the future for literally the same city. Yeah, well, maybe maybe what's egregious about RoboCop in the future will be that they just put a human in the robot rather than have a full robot. And yeah. maybe, maybe that's the part. That's the part that that will seem you know seem a uh, uh, like sci-fi versus the reality of just having actual robot patrolling. Yeah, an exoskeleton, uh, like a mech suit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can see that coming. Yeah, I can see that coming, and they are working on those as well. So. Something to look forward to. So that that is my summary of RoboCop. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to raise about it? Um, well, we're not going to get deep into it, but I'm surprised you haven't brought the uh, the human rights implication of cyborgs ah. um, and like the legality and like like where do they where do they classify what 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 percentage of a cyborg needs to be human for the cyborg to have like basic human rights and you know those sort of like questions that. That seems to, uh, you know, should have been addressed in RoboCop 2. Yes, definitely. <laughs> but I think uh, I think those questions, uh, since they relate to a lot of, um, like, it, 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 it happens in several worlds that, that people are augmented and have, like, like are part human, part machine. It's in Star Trek 2. And then, uh, so, so I think we'll, we can come back to it in a later episode. I can totally envisage... A situation in the near future when cyborgs become more of a reality that in it directly in contracts that police officers and soldiers sign will be a clause that says if you are badly wounded in the uh whether it like out in the field or or whatever in battle that we reserve the right to reanimate you as a cyborg well, that, that's kind of uh, the 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 plot to the video game Deus Ex: Human Revolution. So, oh, uh, so, right on. Yeah, it's essentially <laughs> what the plot is. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so uh, now that we've wrapped up RoboCop, do you want to give a teaser for the your next episode? Oh, I I unfortunately haven't started preparing it, but I, I so I, I do not yet know. I wish I had a better teaser than this. Okay. Um, like I'm, uh, I, I the Deus Ex Human Revolution world is is very interesting, and it also, um, like the 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 video game also um, um, is predictive in some aspect. So like the first, for example, the first game is set in New York City, uh, but in the skyline of New York. The game came out in I think '96 or something like this, but in the skyline of New York City, there are no twin towers. Um, and then, and then the other little like predictive aspects of it that are interesting. So let's say that the next one will be about uh, Deus X, which is uh, which is um, so yeah, video game Deus X, uh, and uh, that that's pretty much my trailer. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, and it will deal heavily with the uh, the ethics of uh, human augmentation. Okay, uh-huh. something to yep. look forward to and look into. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, Joel, that was very fun. Thank you for uh, for um, like making me learn so much about RoboCop. <laughs> and all the things about fascism that we'd like to forget. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, thank you very much, Joel. This was uh, Politics in Space. I'm Antoine. See you soon.
Bye. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>